If you have your Bibles with you, you can turn to the book of Acts. We're going to be a lot of places this morning, but you can at least get to the book of Acts. Hachiko was born on November 10th, 1923 on a farm in Japan. Hachiko's a dog. His picture maybe be on the screen a little bit. But um, he, he was born on a farm in Japan. And uh, in 1924, he was uh, adopted by Mr. Ueno, who lived in Tokyo. And he was taken from farm in Japan to Tokyo to live with Mr. Ueno and his family. Mr. Ueno really enjoyed dogs. Uh, I'm probably butchering all these names, by the way. Um, but uh, Mr. Ueno was a, a professor at uh, the Tokyo University. And uh, he developed this habit with... Uh, with um, Achiko that every day he would walk with Achiko to the train station and he would say goodbye to the dog, board the train and then when he came back at the end of the day Achiko would be waiting there for Wayno and they would walk back home. This happened for quite some time, years and years until one day tragedy struck and Mr. Wayno died at work. Well, obviously, Wayno, Achiko... Yeah, Achigo didn't know that, uh, and so he went and sat at the train station that day. May 21st, 1925, sat there, waited at the train station. Master didn't show up. Next day, he went, sat, waited at the train station. Master didn't show up. From May 21st, 1925, all the way until March 8th, 1935, Achigo went every single day and sat at the train station and waited for his master to show up. Over nine years, Achiko waited. This story of devotion was so impressive uh, to uh, the people of Japan that they made a statue of Achiko that sits outside of that train station there in Japan, destroyed in World War II and rebuilt at the conclusion of the war. Because of the devotion of this dog, nine years until the dog died of natural causes, waiting for his master to return. To what are you devoted this morning? To what are you devoted? Last week, Pastor Justin mentioned to us the fact that the question is not really, are we committed? The question is actually, to what are we committed? And so my question to you this morning is, to what are you committed? To what are you devoted? Luke chapter 18, Jesus told a parable about a woman dealing with an unjust judge, and he prefaced that parable this way, Luke 18 verse 1, and he told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. Barak, I have one thing, one central thing this morning that I want to exhort you to. I have one central thing that I want to call us back to and remind us of. And as I look out on you and I know you, I, I know that many of you know this already. I knew this before I began to prepare this message. But here's the thing, Baraka Bible Church in 2021 with all that we've walked through out of 2020 and with all that we've already seen in 2021 and with all that we can perceive is possibly going to happen in this year, Baraka Bible Church, may we be a church devoted to prayer. 
Now, I know when I mention that, and when you've already caught on, hopefully, if you're paying attention at this point, you've probably clued in on the fact this is going to be a sermon about prayer, right? You following me thus far? Now, when I say that, there is automatically something that can happen within us, all right? There's one extreme that becomes, oh boy, I'm going to go to the whipping shed now, and I'm going to get beat up one side and down the other because I haven't prayed like I ought to, and God's really upset with me, and I'm a terrible Christian, and you know what? I'm, I'm going I'm to try harder. When I get out of this sermon, man, I am going to try really hard. And then, of course, in the back of your mind, there's that little voice that goes, yeah, we tried that before, and remember it lasted about, I don't know, half a day, and then we fell off again, and that is not the focus of this sermon. If you leave here thinking with this message that says, what I need to do is try harder to make God happy with me, you've missed it, okay? There is another extreme, though, that kind of gets on this end that says, you know what, God's good with me and I'm good with God, and prayer is one of those nice things. I can take it or leave it. It's no big deal. Whenever it fits into my life, you know, because God's just happy I'm on his team, and, and, and so, you know, I'll just take and leave prayer when I want it and when I feel like it and that kind of thing, and that is also a wrong view of prayer as we look through Scripture. God commands that we pray. And it is the right outflow of those who understand the relationship that we have with God and the access that we have to Him through the Son by the empowerment of the Spirit. So this morning, what I want to do is I want us to continue in the book of Acts and I want us to see, first of all, the importance of prayer and then I want to point to some dominant axioms of prayer in the book of Acts. So, First of all, the importance of prayer, and I would, I would sum that up this way. Prayer is a natural and critical posture for the church. Prayer is a natural and critical posture for the church. Now, I want to do that by giving us one panorama and then four snapshots, okay? One panorama, four snapshots, all right? So here's, here's the panorama of this, this statement. Prayer is a natural and critical posture of the church. In the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and John, prayer is mentioned a combined 27 times. So you take all those together, prayer is mentioned 27 times. In the Gospel of Luke alone, prayer is referenced 19 times. In the, in the book of Acts, which Luke also wrote, prayer is mentioned more than any other book in the Bible except the Psalms. 32 plus times in the book of Acts, prayer is mentioned or referenced or people are praying. A prayer, I should say, is recorded. Now, that wouldn't be extraordinary if Luke was uh, attending a, a prayer conference. It wouldn't be extraordinary if Luke was writing more like the Apostle Paul and giving instructions on how to pray. But remember what Luke is doing. He is simply acting as a historian. What he desires to do in the book of Acts and what he desires to do in the Gospel of Luke is just to give an accurate account of what happened. And so Luke, in seeking to give an accurate account of what happened, ends up doing what? Writing more on prayer than any other author in the New Testament. Now that is, points to some importance of prayer both in the life of Christ, in the gospel of Luke, and in the continued work of Christ in the book of Acts. 
So do you see that? You see that panorama? We go all the way from, from the book of, of, of Luke, the gospel of Luke, into Acts, and prayer is there all over the place, even as Luke is just simply making historical record of the life of Christ and the continuation of the work of Christ in the church. Okay, so first snapshot. You're, you're, in, you're in the book of Acts. Go to Acts chapter 1, verse 14. Acts chapter 1, verse 14. Beginning of Acts, we have verses 6 through 11. We have the, the Great Commission given again. Acts chapter 1, verse 8, right? That, that they would be his witnesses, Christ's witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. That's the commission. And then Jesus ascends. So next thing that happened, he ascends up into heaven. He's gone. Okay? So once Jesus has ascended up into heaven, he's given this commission to these followers of his, and he's told them to wait until the Holy Spirit comes. So what do they do while they're waiting? Acts chapter 1, verse 14. All of these, and we know that these uh, include the apostles, and they include, as the verse tells us, Mary and the other half-brothers of Jesus. And so we, we, all of these, there's, there's a hundred plus who are a part of that. All of these, with one accord, were devoting themselves to what? To prayer. Now that word devoting, according to, um, a, according to a very popular um, Greek dictionary, is this idea to persist in, to busy oneself with, to continue in, to persevere in. So these followers of Jesus are persevering in prayer while they wait for the Holy Spirit. Now, don't picture them like a, a Disney musical, right? Where everybody knows spontaneously you're supposed to just erupt into song and dance and everybody knows where to be and all that kind of stuff and that kind of thing. That, that's, not, that's not the deal. No, no magical pixie dust has been sprinkled on them that they know, oh, we're just supposed to pray. Let's pray. Where did they learn to pray? How did they know that they were supposed to be praying? Well, they knew to pray because they were the followers of Jesus. And they had seen all throughout Jesus' life that in critical moments and in moments when he was waiting, guess what he was doing? He was praying. So back in the Gospel of Luke, we find that at Jesus' baptism, Luke chapter 3, verse 21, Jesus prays. In Luke chapter 5, verse 16, we find that Jesus had the habit of withdrawing by himself to pray. Before Jesus chooses the 12 disciples, he spends the entire night in prayer. Luke chapter 6, verse 12. After the feeding of the 5,000, he sends the crowd away. He sends his disciples away. And he prays. At the transfiguration in Luke chapter 9, verses 28 and 29, we are told that it is while Jesus is praying that he's transfigured. His humanity is pulled back for a moment and his glory comes bursting forth. Luke chapter 11, verse 1, we find out that it is as Jesus is praying and in light of Jesus praying that the disciples go to Jesus and they say, give us instructions on how to pray. And then we're all very familiar with the fact that the night that Jesus was arrested, knowing that it was his hour, knowing that he was going to die, what is it that he wanted to do right before he was arrested? What is the thing that he wanted to do with his followers knowing that he was about to die? Luke chapter 20, he wanted to, 22, he wanted to withdraw with them 
and pray. Why did they know to pray? Because they had seen Jesus pray. And so they're there and they're praying. Important. Even before the Holy Spirit has come, while they're there waiting, these followers of Jesus, because they've seen it in their master, they're praying. Second snapshot. What about once the Holy Spirit has come? Well, we looked at this last week, so flip over to Acts chapter 2, verse 42. Acts chapter 2, verse 42. The day of Pentecost has happened. The Holy Spirit has been poured out. And he's been poured out on all of those followers of Jesus. Men, women, young, old, rich, poor. He's been poured out on all of them. And one of the first things the Spirit does in this glorious and awesome way is to reverse the Tower of Babel and to have those people who are there begin speaking in other languages. And they're not just speaking nonsense, they're declaring the mighty works of God. That's happened in this 120, I think that it is, 120, go from 120 to over 3,000. Well, then what do they do? Well, we saw this last week, Acts chapter 2, verse 42. This, this gathering of believers there in Jerusalem, what are they devoted to? The verse says this, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship and the breaking of bread and the prayers. Now, as we mentioned last week, we don't want to get into our mind that this church was the perfect church and we need to get back to the way that it was. But here's what we do find in the book of Acts. We do find that these characteristics do not change. Even as the church grows, even as it goes to the Gentiles, even as other local bodies of, bodies of believers develop, they continue to devote themselves to the, the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Now, these things are, work in harmony with one another. These characteristics, they're, 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 they're not in competition with one another, but they're also not interchangeable. They're not, not, I could just say that you can't substitute one for the other. As you read through the book of Acts and as you read through the epistles, you, you can't say, well, I really like to study the word, but I don't like people, so I'm just going to study the word by myself. Well, you know, I really like studying the word, but you know, the whole breaking of bread thing, I don't know, I'm just, whatever. You know, I really, I really like studying the word, but the prayer thing, eh, you know, well, take it or leave. No, all of these are essential, and they devoted themselves to these things. Now, again, we, we, I want you to keep in mind, they weren't following some laid-out program. They, they hadn't read the latest book on uh, spiritual disciplines, and so they said, oh, this is what we're supposed to be doing. This was the natural outflow of the filling of the Holy Spirit. This is what the Spirit of God is prompting this, this brand new church to do. And in those things that the Spirit prompts them to do, He prompts them to pray. Third snapshot. Turn to Acts chapter 6. Acts chapter 6. Acts chapter 6. We'll look at verse 4. So the church continues to grow. More and more people are coming in. And it's encouraging to me as I work with our administrative staff here at Baraka that the early church also had administrative problems, right? What was simple with 100 people, what became more complicated with over 3,000 people became even more complicated the more people kept coming in. And so now all those contributions that people were laying at the apostles' feet, guess what happens? Chapter 6, we've got some squabbles with how that's being distributed. Hold on, wait a second. His is bigger than mine. What? 
right? There's, 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 so among even the, the widows, there's concern about portions of food and that kind of thing. Now that's not the focus. What I want us to focus in on is that, that while they address that by, I think, instituting the role of deacon in that moment, uh, spirit-filled, godly men who would help to deal with that, and the point of the passage is not to say that role is insignificant and the apostle's role is more significant, but both are significant. Here's what I want us to key in on. These apostles who were very unique men, okay? These were specific men called for a specific time to a specific task in God's work of redemption. There are no apostles in the Old Testament, and there are no apostles still today. We don't have time to go through all of what an apostle is, but you can go back to Acts chapter 1 and you can see the criteria for an apostle that was laid out by Peter as they looked to replace Judas who had hanged himself and, and, and find some of that stuff out. These were very unique men who Paul would later talk about in the book of Ephesians as those who, with Jesus Christ at the cornerstone, would lay the foundation for the church. Okay? So these are, these are critical Individuals. These are critical men called to a very specific task at a very specific point in time in God's redemptive plan. And they say, Acts chapter 6, verse 4, but we will devote ourselves to what? Prayer and the ministry of the word. Now, in my mind and maybe in our minds as Barakites, we think obviously they devoted themselves to the ministry of the word. The preaching of the word is, is critical. How significant is it that as men called to lay the foundation for the church, that they also saw it absolutely essential that they devote themselves to prayer? Now, when you think about it for a moment, it's not all that shocking, actually. Because if you think about the last apostle, the one he calls himself untimely born, the apostle Paul, and you think about all of those letters that he wrote, when you think about those letters, what keeps popping up in those letters? Prayer. Prayer. Over and over again, the Apostle Paul records prayers for the churches, or he says himself, I pray for you, we're praying for you. So in Romans chapter 1, verses 9 and 10, for God is my witness whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I make mention of you always in my prayers. Philippians chapter 1, verses 15 and 16, For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love towards all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. Colossians chapter 1, verse 9, And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you. It is significant and shows the importance of prayer that these men who were called by God to lay the foundation for the church devoted themselves, put aside other things, and committed themselves to two things, the preaching of the word, the ministry of the word, and prayer. Fourth snapshot. Go to Acts chapter 10. Acts chapter 10. In Acts chapter 10, if you'll allow me to use this phrase, the gospel, as it were, officially goes to the Gentiles. Now, Gentiles had trusted in Christ before then, because at the end of Acts chapter 8, Philip connects with the Ethiopian eunuch, and he believes and he's baptized. But in official capacity, certainly as Luke records uh, the, the growth of the church, 
uh, this is a very significant moment. And one of the reasons you know it's significant is because Luke takes the entire chapter to talk about this event. And then once he's given the whole, all of chapter 10 to this event, he records Peter going to back to Jerusalem and retelling the entire story again. It's so significant. So what happens in chapter 10? Well, a man by the name Cornelius, who is a Roman centurion, you don't get more Gentile than that. The Holy Spirit works in him. An angel appears to him and says, go send for Peter, who's in Joppa, and Peter comes. Now, Cornelius is so ready that he tries to worship Peter, and that's all a kerfuffle, and, and they straighten all that out. But these Gentiles didn't have manners. They didn't know there's an altar call at the end of the sermon. And so right in the middle of Peter preaching, they believe and the Holy Spirit comes on them. Okay, well, what in the world does that have to do with prayer? Well, we find out Acts chapter 10, verse 30. Look there, Acts chapter 10, verse 30. What do we find? We find that God worked in Cornelius the moment that he was praying he was praying and an angel appeared to him and said, go send for Peter. Well, what about with Peter? He's an apostle, right? He already had all this figured out. Chapter 10, verse 9. How does God communicate with Peter? Peter goes up onto the roof of the house to pray. And while he is praying, he falls into a trance and sees sheet, a sheet come down from heaven with unclean animals. And God begins to help Peter to understand what I have called clean. Don't you dare call unclean. This huge step in the growth of the church, this gospel going to the Gentiles, is all bathed in prayer. You know, God had already said the gospel was going to go to the Gentiles. But something significant when it comes to the subject of prayer is to always keep in mind that God not only ordains ends, He ordains means. God doesn't only just say what He is going to do, but He establishes how He intends to do it. This is part of the reason why believing in a sovereign God is not in contradiction to being a people of constant prayer. Because like we see here in Acts chapter 10, while God had already ordained the gospel would go to the Gentiles, he chose to use the means of prayer to accomplish it. So that's why James can tell us you have not because you ask not. God does not just establish ends, he establishes means. And so here at this critical moment in the book of Acts, what do we find? We find prayer all through the story. Now, I know we, we would probably all testify this morning to the importance of prayer. If I walked around and asked people, do you believe in the importance of prayer? Do you think Scripture teaches that prayer is important? You'd say, yes, I believe it's important. I would have said that before I prepared this message. But what the Holy Spirit has convicted me of all throughout, and even now as I stand up here to preach this message to you, is that what my mouth confesses, my life doesn't. I'm quick to say that prayer is important with my mouth. But in my life, I find that it gets pushed to the back burner. Well, I pray, well, I might have some time after I get this done and that done, uh, maybe right before I go to sleep, maybe a few minutes in the morning when I wake up, maybe, uh, you know, that time when I'm driving in the car, if I choose to turn the radio off or not listen to that next podcast, then maybe I could find some time to pray. Oh, listen to that. 
If you couldn't hear it, I don't know what your problem is because I'm plenty loud. Our culture doesn't help us in this. Our culture tells us and pushes a value of productivity and efficiency. When someone asks you, how was your day? As a good American, guess what you immediately begin to think about? What did I get done? How much of my to-do list did I accomplish? We don't teach each other this. Like, it's not taught in school, but we know it. I didn't realize it until we moved to Senegal, and they do not evaluate anything based upon what they get done. You ask how their day was, they don't care what they got done. They're going to answer that question based upon the people they were able to interact with that day. That's how they evaluate it. But here, it's what did you get done? And one of the problems that you and I, even while we with our mouths profess the importance of prayer, we struggle with is one of those aspects is this cultural value of productivity and efficiency, and prayer is neither productive nor efficient. I can spend hours in prayer, and guess what? Not a thing is checked off of my to-do list, except if I wrote prayer on there. It seems credibly inefficient to pray when I'm looking at my day, and I'm going, I could just get started. I could just do the stuff instead of praying about the, the stuff. And so we find ourselves challenged in these things Brothers and sisters, be reminded this morning that there are things way more significant in your life and in your day than what you get done. There are things that are incredibly significant that do not make a to-do list and do not fall under the category of those things which are efficient according to our standards. There are really important things for us to do, prayer being one of us, one of them that will not help us get more done. Well, for time's sake, we've got to move on. Two dominant axioms or principles regarding prayer in the book of Acts, and we'll have to move through these quickly. The first one is this. Prayer is the posture of the people of God who are awaiting the fulfillment of the promises of God. Prayer is the posture of the people of God who are awaiting the fulfillment of the promises of God. Acts chapter 1, verse 14. We already looked there, so you don't have to go back there. But what we find these believers doing as they await the Holy Spirit is not unique. It's not different. It's something we find all through Scripture. When God's people are awaiting the fulfillment of His promises, we constantly find them praying. Prayer is the posture of the waiting people of God. They had no ability to make the Holy Spirit come. God didn't say to them, do these five things, then I'll send the Holy Spirit. Do this, that, the other thing, mix this together, do that, and then boom, the Holy Spirit. No, they had zero ability to get the Holy Spirit to come. They were told they could do nothing until the Holy Spirit came regarding the task that God had given. And so what do they do? They wait and they pray. Where else do we find this? Well, two key moments. We find it in Daniel. Daniel exiled into Babylon, and what is he doing? He's willing to give his life. He's willing to die why? Because he is going to persist in prayer. What is he praying about? He's claiming the promises that God would restore the nation of Israel. And so he prays while he waits, totally incapable of making that restoration happen. What does he do then? He goes to the one who can. And he prays. And he claims those promises. 
I think of Anna the prophetess there in the temple as Luke records that she worshipped in the temple and fasted and prayed day and night awaiting the promised Messiah. Able to make the Messiah come? Nope. But she had access to the one who could. And so while she waited, she prayed. We as a church are awaiting people. Back in Acts chapter 1, the disciples, Jesus is risen from the dead. He's conquered death. And so they asked Jesus, is now the time for the kingdom? And Jesus says, no, that's, that's for the Father. He, he knows the time. Jesus leaves and the angels come. They say, the way he left, he's coming back. Even after the Holy Spirit has come, the church is awaiting people. They're awaiting the return of their Lord and Savior. They're awaiting the full establishment of the kingdom. They're awaiting paradise, a new heaven and a new earth. That's us, folks. We're waiting for those things. And as awaiting people of God, we should be a praying people of God. After all, it is what Jesus taught his disciples to do, right? When he taught them to pray, the first thing that he taught them to pray was what? Your kingdom come. Your kingdom come. I think one of the reasons that we don't pray is because we are busy trying to make, as Paul Tripp says in his book Forever, we're busy trying to make this earth paradise. We are working hard and our to-do lists are full of trying to make this world comfortable and this life easy and to make this paradise. And when we are striving to make this paradise, there is no time to pray for the coming kingdom. There is no time for it because I have to keep working and fighting against the curse of sin, the thorns and thistles that come in. We need to have that mindset that Paul called the church at Corinth to have to set their minds on things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God, and not on things of the earth. Second axiom is this. Prayer is the posture of the church engaged in the mission of God. Prayer is the posture of the church engaged in the mission of God. Acts chapter 1, verse 8, we already talked about this, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. God gave to his church this commission, this charge. And as you read through the book of Acts, you begin to pick up on all these times that prayer is mentioned. You will be very confused if you try and understand why the church is praying or what they are praying about if you detach it from the mission that Christ had given to them. It won't make sense. So in Acts chapter 4, when Peter and John are, are uh, persecuted, as it were, brought before the council, told that they're not to speak in the name of Christ any longer, it doesn't make sense that when they leave that occasion, they're not praying, oh God, keep us safe. Help us to figure out how to, how to conform more and not offend people. Help us, please. No, what is their prayer? Well, it's the longest prayer recorded in the book of Acts. And right at the heart of it is this in Acts chapter 4, verse 29. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. Why? Because they had been given a mission. Their mission was to proclaim the mighty works of God. So instead of praying that they would conform or that they would be safe, their prayers were what? Grant us boldness that we'd continue to walk in obedience to what you've called us to. Same in Acts chapter 12 when Peter is going to be executed. What do we find him doing? He's praying. The church is praying for him. 
In Acts chapter 16, when Paul and Silas are thrown into prison, again, for proclaiming the gospel, what are they doing at midnight? Well, they're praying and singing hymns to God. The very critical moment in Acts chapter 13, when at that church in Antioch, they're laying aside these first missionaries to be sent out, what do they do? How does the Holy Spirit prompt them to lay aside these missionaries? It's in a moment of prayer, and then they pray for them and fast, lay hands on them, and then they send them out. And then after they're sent out, what do we find them doing? In all of these local gatherings, these local churches, what do we find them doing? Acts chapter 14, verse 23. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. One of the reasons I am convinced that we do not pray is because we have forgotten our mission. If my life is about making me comfortable and keeping my family safe, or even if my life is just about being good, let's be honest with one another. There are a lot of unsaved people who never pray who are really good. There are a lot of really successful unsaved people. They're good employees, they're good neighbors, they're good students. Because if our mission is to be good, if our mission is just to be nice, if our mission is just to be successful, if our mission is just to be safe, then we don't need prayer. I don't need the empowerment of the Holy Spirit to be safe and to be good. There are plenty of Muslims and Hindus and Buddhists and Jehovah's Witnesses who do all of those things. And to make an honest confession, some of them do them better than I do. But if my mission, if our mission is to make disciples of all of the nations, and I consider the fact that this morning there are hundreds of millions of people who if they wanted to know who Jesus was, if they wanted to hear the message of the gospel, they could not find out. They couldn't certainly find out in their own heart language when I consider that task and how overwhelming it is, what do I find myself doing? Oh, God, send more, please, God. When I consider the fact that my neighbors are not my neighbors by accident, when I consider the fact that my coworkers are not my coworkers by accident, when I consider the fact that people who are on the same sports team as me, in the same club as me, who, who I see on a regular basis at the gym or these other places are not there by accident, but it is God's sovereign purposes and plans that have made our lives intersect, and I have the gospel, which is the power of God unto salvation for them, and I know them and I look at them, and some of them, their hearts are so hard towards the gospel, and I think, I, I need to share it with them. This is my mission I'm totally incapable of making them believe. What do I find myself doing? Oh God, oh God, help me. Help me to have boldness to share the gospel with my neighbors. I'm embarrassed at times, Lord. I'm embarrassed. They, please give me the words. Please help me to, to, to share with them and, and to communicate clearly. Save them, Lord. John Piper in his book, Let the Nations Be Glad, says this, God has given us prayer as a wartime walkie-talkie so that we can call headquarters for everything we need as the kingdom of Christ advances in the world. Prayer gives us the significance of frontline forces and gives God the glory of a limitless provider. 
The one who gives the power gets the glory. Thus, prayer safeguards the supremacy of God and missions while linking us with endless grace for every need. He goes on to say this, It is not surprising that prayer malfunctions when we try to make it into a domestic intercom to call upstairs for comforts in the den. If we forget the mission of God, we will forget the importance of prayer because God has given to us, Baraka Bible Church, to us a task of making disciples of the nations and we can't save a single person. We can't argue anyone into the kingdom. We can't be nice enough to anyone to get them to come into the kingdom. That has to happen by the work of the Holy Spirit. And He has ordained the means that people are saved by the proclamation of the gospel. And so we plead with Him in prayer. A couple of applications and we'll stop. Baraka Bible Church, be devoted to prayer. May we as a church be devoted to prayer. What does that mean? Pastors, teachers, small group leaders, ministry leaders, do not neglect prayer in your gathering. I know, I know, I know, I know how tempting it is to, you spend all of your time getting the lesson ready, you give almost no thought to prayer, and you just think, well, it'll just happen. But then you get there, and you're so excited about what you have to say, prayer gets squeezed and squeezed and squeezed and squeezed until it's five minutes or, or two minutes at the end, and it gets pushed on. Commit yourself to prayer. Think about what you're going to pray. Take passages of Scripture and lead us as a church through those passages of Scripture. May we pray together. Baraka, if you're not one of those who's leading, do not treat prayer as filler time, as throwaway time. We don't pray in our services, in our gatherings. Pastor Justin doesn't pray because he's still trying to get to where he's supposed to be in his notes. We don't pray afterwards so Patrick has time to get up on the stage. It is not just an in-between filler. We pray because it is significant, because it is what the church should be devoted to. Secondly, make margin in your life for prayer. Now, some of you out there, you have a to-do list that is insanely long, and you need to drop some things on that to-do list, not because they are bad, but because prayer is more important. Some of you out there, you don't even have a to-do list. You maybe wrote one, but now you can't find it. You're the group that needs to drop a few episodes on Netflix, a little video game time, a little uh, social media time, and commit to time in prayer. And all of us need to continue to fight against our culture's insatiable appetite for entertainment. The idol of entertainment is seeking daily to indoctrinate us with its three principal tenets. Everything should be entertainment. Entertainment solves everything, and boredom is worse than sin. Listen to me. Prayer was never intended to be entertaining. So if we go to prayer and we say, God, you better entertain me while I do this, we're going to be disappointed. Prayer is not supposed to be entertained. There's a reason that it talks about devoting ourselves to prayer. It is something we persevere in, not something that amuses us. And third, rejoice in the privilege of prayer, Baraka. Rejoice in the privilege of prayer. This is what we get to celebrate at this table. Here's the insane thing, the insane reality is that prayer gives us a tangible means of acting out our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Prayer is this opportunity to show that, that we believe that a holy God 
willingly and delight and joyfully accepts us into his presence, not because we're good enough, not because we'll pray hard enough, not because we'll pray the right words, not because we've done enough good things, but because of the perfect work of his son. And as we pray, we go to him and we say, Father, we enter your presence totally based upon the sufficient work of your son, Jesus Christ. We're trusting in him. We're trusting in what he's accomplished. We know we can enter boldly before your throne because we're justified by grace through faith. We are your children. Father, hear me as I pray. We know this as well, that every time you and I are motivated to pray, it is not because we're good people. It is not because we've pulled ourselves up by our bootstraps. It is because we are spirit-filled people and the spirit of God is working inside of us, crying out that we're children of God and directing us in that beautiful, natural relationship to call out to our heavenly Father. Amen? What a joy prayer is. I am convinced of this, that it is the work of none other than the great deceiver himself, Satan, that takes prayer, this beautiful and glorious privilege, and turns it into something of pharisaical, uh, meritorious religiosity. Or on the other extreme, convinces us that it's not something that's that significant. We can take it or leave it, pray when we feel like it, no big deal. Oh my, the privilege, brothers and sisters, of prayer. The amazing thing on that day of Pentecost was that the glory of God had come down before. It had come down on Mount Sinai and it was so fierce that God said, don't let a single person touch that mountain, they'll die. It had come down in the temple, in the tabernacle, and guess what? Even the high priest had to wear a string around his ankle with a bell on it so that if he was struck dead, they could drag him out. But at that day of Pentecost, after the perfect sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ was made. The Spirit of God, God Himself, didn't come down on a mountain, and He didn't come down on a temple. He came down and He filled all of those who were justified by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. He lives and indwells each and every one of us. And that God, because of that perfect sacrifice, invites us into prayer. Let's pray together. Father, my prayer this morning, as you well know, that we as a church would devote ourselves to prayer. Thank you for the privilege of prayer. And I, I pray, I know, even as, even as these words have gone out, because I've wrestled with this all week in my life, there are objections, Lord. There are those objections that say you're not good enough. There are those objections that say you don't know how to pray. There, 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 there are the objections that say, I know you're going to start this, and then you're going to fail, so don't even start. Oh, Lord, I pray, I pray that your word would speak louder, that your spirit would speak louder than those lies, and that we as a church would be devoted to prayer, to your glory, and for the advancement of your gospel. In Christ's name we pray, amen.